0: everybody. You
1: are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today we have with us a guest, Dr. Dallas Van Diver. Welcome to the podcast, Dallas. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And Dallas is an assistant professor of Christian studies at North Greenville University, and he has written a book uh, which is titled, Who Can Take the Lord's Supper? A biblical theological argument for close communion. Now, if you don't know what some of those words mean, that is okay. We are going to get into that and we hope that this is a really practical and accessible conversation we're going to have around the topic of who ought to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so in my on my blog where I'm sharing this podcast, um, you can link to it uh, there. I will have a link to the book that Dallas has written, as well as a shorter article um, that he has shared with me, some other materials that kind of can give you a synopsis, a short version of his book and the arguments there. Um, but let's start off by just discussing, you know, I imagine some, a lot of folks probably, most people listening to this episode here are probably not terribly familiar with even the fact that there are different views on the question who can take the Lord's Supper or who ought to take the Lord's Supper. So Dallas, can you walk us through the major positions? on who is seen as permitted to take the Lord's Supper? Or sometimes this issue gets referred to as fencing the table, the Lord's Supper seen as like a table and you fence it or you guard the table in terms of who is allowed to partake. What are the major positions that we're, we're looking at here?
0: Yeah, so um, especially thinking in uh, overall church history, it's, it's just been very common throughout all of church history uh, to say that, well, believers take the Lord's Supper. It's a family meal. In um, there's more to it than that, that I'll come back to later as far as the history arguments. But in uh, Baptistic kind of churches that would advocate for believers' baptism, there are especially three views. You could maybe even subdivide further, but you can think of an open communion, represented by someone like John Bunyan, that says the the basis upon which a group of believers can take the Lord's supper together in a church is that they are trusting in Jesus faith and that they are walking with Christ. That is the basis of their ability to take the Lord's supper together. Um, So that's referred to as open communion. There's another variety of that, that we can get into at another time. Um, Then there's close communion. Close communion is what I advocated for in the book. And it just says, um, The Lord's Supper is reserved for those who have been baptized as professing believers and are members of another gospel preaching church, an evangelical church. Um, So the baptism with faith is prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. And then there's this understanding of you're under uh, the shepherding and the accountability and the responsibility for and to other believers in a particular church. Close communion. Then closed communion was much more popular in uh, 20th century, um, late 19th, 20th century. And it basically argued your own local church members only are the only ones who can take the Lord's Supper. It's associated with what's called the landmark movement. And so, you know, that it's an interesting historical uh, doctrine of the church test case if somebody wanted to go down a rabbit trail one day. But, um, yeah, open communion and close communion are by far the most dominant in Baptist life today.
1: Yeah. And so for our discussion here, I'm not, we're not trying to insinuate that there aren't other positions, but especially thinking about how this episode is, you know, we're trying to tailor it for maybe someone who hasn't encountered these views before. We're going to try to simplify the discussion um, and simply look at those first two positions, kind of comparing those two open and close communion, closed communion. In my, uh, informal polling that I've done on the line and conversations with other pastors is much more of a minority view today. Very rare. Um, and just to be clear, it's, there's, there's a D on the end of that one. So you're, you're advocating for close communion. Like this is, cl- these are close to each other. Uh, that kind of use of the word or closed. Like it's closed off. Um, and so open every, all the positions agree that uh, that we're talking about here, at least, that it should be believers who partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, and so that's, everyone agrees on that prerequisite among these positions. The question is, are there additional marks or additional requirements, if we want to use that word, that ought to also, uh, be, um, sort of embedded with what it means to be a believer in, in a normal sense and, and how that ought to look? And so let's look at, let's kind of examine the open and the close communion. But before we do that, you know, maybe someone's listening to this and this seems like some very bizarre talk, like who cares? Like, why are we, why do we care that much? Um, So maybe answer that question for us. Why does this issue matter? Why should we, you know, spend the next hour or whatever this conversation is to listen to
0: this? Yeah. Well, one reason would be because we get commands about baptism and the Lord's Supper, Um, In the scripture So if we see that Jesus has commanded baptism um, We want to know Why has he done that? What's the relation of baptism to being a Christian To the Lord's Supper, to the church Um, Even if someone Understands we're saved by grace alone Through faith alone, in Christ alone um, They still see that Command for baptism And So there's this uh, need to ask the question If Christ commanded it, how does that fit With my personal trust in Christ And with my relationship to Christ's body, the church Um, Another very significant reason, I think, for even considering who can take the Lord's Supper is that group that a Christian regularly takes the Lord's Supper with is, according to the New Testament, a church. Um, And God has always had, as he has had a people, that people is marked off from the world. There's the inside. Group that is God's people, and there's the outside. In the Old Testament, you see that by covenant signs and those who are within circumcised households, men and women, where the male is circumcised. So those within a circumcised household that belong to the people of Israel, those who convert to Judaism are on the inside. They are God's people. And then there are the people of the surrounding nations. They are part of the world. And there's differences now between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we still have in the New Testament and inside those marked as God's people and an outside. And so this is where it really hits the road for me. I'm thinking in terms of just personal relationships. Um, we we want to Think about how Scripture presents the relationships, the understood embedded uh, responsibility to and for other brothers and sisters in Christ that is implicit in the Lord's Supper meal. So I'm going to argue that it has uh, when you take the Lord's Supper with other people, part of the essence of what that meal means is that you are unified with those other brothers and sisters and have a responsibility to them and for them for their spiritual growth and nurture in the Lord. And so we want to know who can take the Lord's Supper together and how are we as God's people marked off from the world?
1: Yeah. Now I can imagine though, so you're advocating for the close communion position as would I. And so I can imagine some people having a bit of a knee jerk reaction um, to that position, maybe, especially if they haven't encountered this before. I imagine there's some people who, all they've ever experienced is that churches practice open communion, the idea that it's offered to uh, believers, and that's all that's stated as being the requirement. Um, so I think some folks you know, might feel, for instance, isn't this adding requirements that go beyond Scripture? How would you respond to that objection?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, sometimes it's stated in terms of we wouldn't want to require anything of a person to take the Lord's Supper that Jesus doesn't require for that person to become a Christian. Um, As you look in scripture, though, there's actually a distinction between uh, becoming a Christian and belonging to Christ's body, the church. And so you might think of it in terms of uh, when a person believes in Jesus, they are united with Christ. Um, That union with Christ is what makes them a part of the body of Christ. Um, but participating in all the benefits of union with Christ, his death for them, um, his righteousness imputed to them, all these things. And yet, there is a, a, an actual practical outworking step that is needed in order to formally um, begin associating with other particular believers and form a church. It's not enough for me just to believe in Jesus out on a beach one day and have a friend baptize me and have no association with the church because you get letters throughout the New Testament written to churches mm-hmm. where Paul is regularly referring to, like in Galatians or in Romans, you have all been baptized. He assumes that all the believers in those churches have been baptized. And so we're not just um, asking the question of, is God, are we adding more requirements? In order to take the Lord's Supper than Jesus does to be a Christian, we're looking at the full breadth and scope of what Scripture teaches about how Christians relate to Christ and the church. Um, one further little rabbit trail here—it's not really a rabbit trail. Um, when you look at what it looks like to be a Christian, you think of Jesus's great commission. He, he calls the disciples to go and make disciples. And those early disciples began proclaiming the gospel in Acts chapter two. And those who believe are baptized and they form themselves into a local church believe it or not, right? It's mm-hmm. it's right there in the beginning, but it actually, it actually takes them baptizing those new believers into that local fellowship, that local church, and then they end up sending out missionaries from that church, and they'll go to new cities. They preach the gospel in Corinth, Acts 18. They baptize everybody who believes, and then Paul talks about teaching those believers in Corinth who were baptized, according to Acts 18, what he received from the Lord about how to take the Lord's So in other words, we just don't want to isolate what it looks like to become a Christian and separate that from the corporate people of God. We want to recognize that Scripture doesn't, God doesn't intend for us just to be saved as isolated individuals, but for us to be included in a covenant community. And that's going to actually take the means of uh, signs of belonging to God, baptism and the Lord's Supper.
1: Yeah. I also think of uh, the statement that is often quoted from the Westminster where the Westminster Confession, that is, for instance, or the uh I think the second London Baptist reflects this as well. The idea that we make necessary inferences from scripture. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to just treat the Bible and the way we seek to apply the Bible, especially when it comes to theology and the doctrine of the church and how to operate as a church as mere like just cherry picking verses. And if we can't find like a, a verse that cherry picks this, therefore it's out of the question. We want to be able to see how does the Bible relate belief in Jesus to baptism in Jesus, to belonging to Jesus's people, the church. We want to network those and see how they fit together. And so, uh, you would argue, and I would argue that it's not actually adding to Scripture, um, even if there isn't some verse that says explicitly one must be baptized in a member of a local church, a gospel preaching church, to be uh, to take the Lord's Supper. It, it's still we do this with the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, where we're networking the verses together to formulate. Okay, it says Jesus is fully God. It says the Spirit is God, the Father is God, and yet there's one God. And so we work to put those together. Um, I I would say something similar is done here, where once you understand how baptism works and understand what the Lord's Supper is and membership and all that, that's where we get this. Um, The other thing too is sometimes I think people say, you know, it's adding a requirement beyond being a believer, as in all that should be required is being a believer in Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a symbol, uh, depicting one's participation in Christ's death. Um, and I, I hear that. I think it may be a misunderstanding of what close communion advocates are actually arguing. Yes, like you said, there is a distinction between believing in Jesus, getting baptized, and joining the church. But the reason we, we would say all of those are necessary requirements for the Lord's Supper is because we see those things as um, being bound together. They ought to exist together, and so in some ways, it's not really adding additional requirements to belief. It's just saying, what? How do we know who the believers are? Uh, they are, according to Scripture, those who get baptized and become a part of the believing community. They are those who are marked off as believers in baptism, and those who are publicly recognized as a believer in a believing community, the church. So in one sense, yes, it's an additional requirement, but that sort of could misunderstand, uh, the, the, the nature of those additional requirements and how they're really even just embedded in the idea of what we mean by a believer. So. Yeah, good. What about an objection that says, you know, won't someone experience this as exclusionary or rude? Like, say someone comes to your church and they're not allowed to partake. Isn't that, you know, an unhelpful pastoral
0: practice? Yeah, it's a good question because we, we we don't want to be rude, and there's enough um, there's enough of that that can go around anyway because we're still uh, fighting with the flesh by the power of the spirit. So yes, we want our practices and certainly what we say as we're preparing to take of a meal that reminds us that we're all not deserving of God's grace. We want that to be gracious in the way that we state it, um, but if we recognize that pastorally. Also, part of what it means to be loving, to be gracious, is to call people to obedience to all that Christ commands. And the very first, uh, you might say, means of following in the Great Commission, we are to make disciples. How? Baptizing and teaching. So teaching to obey. Baptizing is that first, at least formal public act of entering God's new covenant community called the church. And so it's it's not excluding someone um, or especially not unnecessarily excluding someone from the meal to call for baptism as a prerequisite to the meal. It is rather to actually uphold the things Jesus upholds and to call people to do the things that Jesus calls them to do and to not act like we have the authority to affirm people in, uh, failing to do what Jesus has called them to do. No, our job as pastors and church leaders, right, is to call people and help people to learn to obey all that Jesus has commanded. We're learning to do that. We want them to learn to do that with us individually and also as churches.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And what would what if you would what would you say if someone said, you know, uh, we don't want to exclude anyone who is a genuine believer? So say there's a genuine believer who, you know, given the benefit of the doubt, we let's say hypothetically they're they're a believer, but they haven't been baptized. They're not a part of a church. Well, we don't want to exclude them, do we? What would you say to that?
0: Yeah, good. No, we don't want to exclude them. And that's why in the process of setting up that that meal and explaining this is what the bread and the cup are, and this is who is invited to participate, we call them to abstain until they are baptized. That's why we do that, because we want to include them. We, by all means, we want them to see that, yes, We're grateful that they are trusting in Jesus. Maybe that brother or sister has never heard what Scripture teaches about baptism, and they just need to be shown. And so the whole point is actually we want to include them on Jesus's terms. And so we're, we're not wanting to lessen the terms than what Jesus has put down. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also worth adding. I think someone who's initially hearing this and, you know, especially in our culture where we want to be so nice, we want to be inclusive, a position that adds these requirements as it's seen, um, it could, it, it feels maybe harsh or something like that. Um, I actually think there can be benefit. And this is, I think, what you're saying. We should, we should acknowledge that there's actually pastoral benefit to the person who is asked to abstain because maybe they have been part of churches and partaking of the Lord's Supper and say they're not baptized and it's never really occurred to them that that's a problem. Um, well, now they come to your church and they're not, they're actually not allowed to take the Lord's Supper because they haven't actually fulfilled that command from Christ, uh, you know, an elementary command from Christ. Um and now they're actually confronted with that. That's a good thing. Um, like it's a good th- – like no, we don't want to be mean about it or harsh about it and we should invite them to to come along in the process and see that done. Um, but it's actually good for them in that sense. They may not respond properly. We can't control how they respond. But – Uh, Or if they're not a part of a church, say they haven't seen the value of actually formally and publicly joining themselves to a local church, being under its authority and accountable, we see that as a good thing. We see that as something that's not really optional for the believer, actually, but something that every believer ought to do. And so maybe they've never been challenged. And um, just by being allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper, it can actually... Um, fuel that bad behavior. It can kind of keep allowing, it can enable it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so by being, uh, by being disallowed, so to say, or not allowed to take the Lord's Supper, it kind of serves as a, a public, uh, reminder to them that there is something off that should be addressed. And of course, we want to do that gently and nicely. Um, but it actually can be a benefit to them too. Yes. So, Let's walk through maybe the history of the different positions in terms of, you know, what most churches have traditionally held to, speaking of Baptistic or Baptist churches. Um, what have been the practices and, and maybe even the historical theology that, that we can learn from it then?
0: Yeah, so I'll just give in terms of a very much summative <laughs> yeah. comment of the early, early church history. Sure, um, sure. It's very interesting. I was reading in a book uh, recently— an article by Matthew Emerson on baptism in the history of the church. And he spoke of uh, the need to be baptized before taking the Lord's Supper as you might call it a little C Catholic uh, position. You might call it an ecumenical in a positive sense of what has the church basically always throughout 2000 years of history practiced. That's Mm -hmm. what's meant in this case by little C Catholic or ecumenical, A, a church historical position is that you need to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper. That's been understood from the Didache and the second century, very early second century, uh, through church documents all the way through. Now, in terms of just some of the history of the positions in Baptist life, uh, you can think about those by uh, some debates that started in uh, just post-Reformation. And in the early 1600s, there were different theologians such as William Kiffin and John Bunyan, who held debates on this matter. And they were going back and forth to try and discern on what basis are we not belonging any longer uh, to the Church of England, for example. And as they talked about, well, we're separatists, we are nonconformists, we don't, believe that scripture calls us to have to worship in a certain way or wear certain things when we preach and things like this, um, we are forming ourselves into what we see as New Testament churches. But then these debates arose over as we form ourselves into New Testament churches, you have these reformation marks of the church, which are gospel preaching, and then the administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those two marks are crucial to a reformation, post-reformation understanding of the church, And many had added um, just kind of as an entailment of a right participation in the baptism and Lord's Supper, the practice of church discipline as well. And so, yeah, the churches, the various pastors were trying to work out, what does this look like in my congregation? And especially when they looked in the New Testament and they saw that Jesus is calling for believers, those who want to become disciples to do that, not just individually and praying a prayer to Christ calling on him to save them, but formally and publicly entering into God's people through a public act of baptism, then the debate arose. So um, some of the arguments, for example, um, John Bunyan is arguing that he will have the Lord's Supper with any who are visible saints. Um, If they are professing believers and their life seems to demonstrate that, he did at least go that far. Their life seems to demonstrate that they are a, quote, visible saint. Then he will have the Lord's Supper with them. Bunton is an interesting case. And his, uh, as I outline some of these arguments, just think of the fact that his basic view is what has predominantly influenced how we understand open communion today. There's another category, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes called mixed communion, but we're thinking of Bunyan's view because it's been so influential. Bunyan argued where Paul will talk about in Romans chapter 14 and 15, receive those Christ has received. There was was some division going on in the church at Rome, and Paul addressed it, and Bunyan applied that principle, um, receive those Christ has received, to this issue of who can take the Lord's Supper. Um, As well, Bunyan would bring up things such as uh, I don't want to exclude any person who is walking in relationship with Christ uh, because that would be viewed as me lacking love. He viewed that as just flat unloving, as denying the unity of the church and all those who are united to Christ. So for Bunyan, it's unloving. Um, It pushes against the unity of the church. And then Bunyan had some interesting views on baptism in particular. He recognized he was a uh, professor of believer's baptism. He believed that that's what scripture taught. And at the same time, he made a distinction between water baptism, actually being baptized in water, immersed and raised up to symbolize dying with Christ and being raised with Christ, made a distinction between water baptism and what he called uh, the doctrine of baptism, which is Basically, a, a way of saying being united with Christ. I die to my old sinful way of life, and I am by the Spirit given new life to start to walk in following Jesus. And he said, whenever the scripture speaks about baptism in relation to a believer, it's usually talking about the idea, the spiritual doctrine of baptism. It's not actually meaning water baptism. So for Bunyan, water baptism was merely an individual step of obedience completely disassociated from the church. And that meant it certainly was not uh, prerequisite to the Lord's Supper or any kind of participation in the church. One other argument from Bunyan is just, and it's probably the most important open communion argument. They they argued, uh, Bunyan along with others who advocated for it, if I had a command in the New Testament that told me believers' baptism baptism of a professing believer is necessary as a prerequisite to taking the Lord's Supper. Bunyan said, I would be all for it. I would be fine with that. And I would uh, abide by it. But I don't have that. And so because of all the other commands about love and unity, then I'm not going to seem to exclude someone. I'm going to welcome them. Yeah. So that's some of the open communion.
1: Yeah, yeah. What would you say are maybe the most common arguments? So, because Bunyan has some very, uh, peculiar arguments too that are, that I don't think a lot of people would repeat by him, like especially divorcing uh, sort of the doctrine of baptism, maybe spirit baptism or however he wanted to call that from water baptism, as if like when scripture addresses, uh, that it's somehow Separating those two in terms of the thing signed, the thing, the sign and the thing signified. But what would you say are maybe the most common arguments of people who hold to open communion today?
0: Okay, yeah, Uh, the unity argument. We want to be unified, and we're privileging the spiritual unity of all Christians, all true believers everywhere, over any kind of um, certain understanding of baptism. That's a big one. The receive all those Christ has received goes right along with that the idea that we need a new testament command it's insufficient to look back and see whatever else might be going on in scripture that might imply that believers baptism that baptism of any kind is prerequisite to the lord's supper so, that's insufficient we need a new testament command another one that gets brought up quite a bit is if we say that someone is not allowed to take the Lord's Supper, unless they have that prerequisite of baptism, we are basically expelling them, ex- communicating them from the church. We don't view them as a Christian because they've not been baptized. So that, that one is brought up as well. That's a, a frequent contemporary argument um, so that it implies they are being punished by our church or something, mm. uh, something like this. And that's not actually what the view teaches, but, but that's the way it's sometimes viewed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It sort of assumes it's already assuming that they're in the church, that therefore they're even some of the language I was using before uh, as it was coming out. I'm like, that's not even the most accurate because it's not like. The close communion is arguing that people in the church ought to be excluded. It would say they're not actually publicly in the church yet.
0: That's right. Um,
1: and so they're not being excommunicated. They haven't been communicated. Uh, in, it, there's not a. They're not in communion. In other words. So how would you? I guess I gave one response, but how would you respond to those sort of arguments? Why do you find those main open communion arguments inadequate or unconvincing?
0: Yeah. Um- And I'll even give some of the historical ones first, and then I can even add some of mine. But yeah, sure. Some of the historical ones would be things like we follow the apostolic pattern. Um, Some of the open communion, uh, I'll have to refer to a little bit more open communion arguments and even maybe saying some of these. But it it was acknowledged by various open communion proponents that the apostolic pattern was, as I just outlined earlier earlier, uh, in Acts, believe, be baptized, start gathering as a local church that takes the Lord's Supper. That's how churches get planted in Acts. And yet open communion advocates would say, we don't need to follow the apostolic pattern because there's been confusion on the interpretation of baptism that came into the the church history uh, between the apostolic period and today. And so we can't very well hold people um, to needing to be baptized, because there's confusion over that. Well, the the close communion arguments would say, yes, but we don't actually have the freedom to edit Jesus, in the words of uh, one contemporary proponent of close communion. This, <laughs> Joseph Kinghorn is basically arguing the same thing, uh, a historical Baptist proponent. He said, we follow the apostolic pattern. Andrew Fuller does as well. And so, Andrew Fuller makes a an important case for there's a covenantal association of baptism and the Lord's Supper, even in the New Testament, they are bound together as markers of the church. Um, the baptism is what marks a person as initiating their coming into the body of Christ. And the Lord's Supper marks they're continuing to be a part of the body of Christ. And he looks to places like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and how Paul is connecting. There's some complex things going on in 1 Corinthians 10, but Paul is connecting the church at Corinth to the experience of Israel and says the church at Corinth similar to Israel, you have been baptized, and then you partake of spiritual food. And he says this is a a continual pattern throughout the scripture that you come into uh, God's people by a certain covenant sign, and then you show that you belong to God's people by a different covenant sign. And uh, the whole idea of what the church is was an important argument for close communion in history. So the church itself is composed of baptize believers in Jesus Christ. That's who belongs to the church. And so uh, various advocates of close communion in history have said, if you allow the church to actually be composed of those who are not baptized, you are now changing the biblical definition of the church altogether, and so there, there have been various responses. One, one of the others to um, the idea that not allowing someone to take the Lord's Supper because they haven't been baptized is to exclude them or discipline them. Our response to that, even just adding to what you mentioned earlier, um, would be that, look, when, when Paul says include all those Christ has received, he's actually talking to a church, the church at Rome. And Mm -hmm. all those people within the church at Rome had already been baptized. Look at Romans chapter six. And so the issue Paul's talking about in Romans chapter uh, 15 and 14 about their need for unity within that local church is written to people who already take the Lord's Supper together and have all been baptized. It's not like they're trying to keep people from taking the Lord's Supper and that's the issue Paul has in mind. They're actually dealing with issues of Christian freedom, not issues like baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are explicitly commanded.
1: Right, yeah. So going back to the history then, um, some, some of the historical observations, you outlined how you know the open position emerged with uh, John Bunyan kind of being the leading proponent of what we think of open communion, at least today. Was that the predominant view across Baptist history? Is closed communion like where does close communion fit in and in terms of its uh, how that position was held across Baptistic history?
0: Yeah. Great question. Uh, It looks like that the predominant view was close communion without the D Um, as far as what was actually articulated in the Baptist confessions of faith, what was being articulated by pastors of Baptist churches in England and in the United States. And Yet, at the same time, it is open communion that has probably become the most influential. Uh, So, for example, the first London Confession of Faith, 1644, does not mention uh, baptism as a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. But it was republished in 1646 with an appendix that does mention it. So it's just interesting. They didn't make it a test of fellowship amongst the Baptist Association in England. And yet they included it as a kind of a wise practice in an appendix. In 16, uh, you have the the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith, and it does not include baptism as prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. And as you look at the surrounding context just historically, it's clear they are facing a number of issues in relating to uh, the Anglican Church that led them to decide you can be a part of our association even if you practice an open communion. Um, but within their own particular local churches, all during that time, you get Andrew Andrew Fuller and Abraham Booth and these various different proponents for the next hundred years that are still arguing for close communion. Um, New Hampshire Confession of Faith, a lot of churches in the United States have been influenced by Philadelphia Confession of Faith is more um, relying on Second London, but New Hampshire Mm -hmm. presents close communion. Um, Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, baptism is a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper, and then so does every instantiation of the Baptist faith and message right, that a lot of yeah. Baptists, Southern Baptist convention, at least churches, adhere to.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that it's actually been, if I'm understanding it correctly, so in the early church and even outside of Baptistic churches, even where baptism is defined differently, it's common for them to require what is least conceived of as baptism, even if that's infant baptism. And in the early yes. church, that was, it's well-documented. So it may be a surprise to someone who, uh, you know, thinks the idea of open communion is so normal and so common. We're actually in more of a little, we're, we're in a bit of a historical aberration from that norm in churches that practice that it's been the more dominant view that even where there are differences, um, over the subject of baptism that churches are still requiring that sort of initiation mark. Um, And then within particularly Baptist history, the close communion, not the one with the D the close communion has been the dominant view and Bunyan was sort of an outlier. Is that, is that fair? You've done way more reading on this.
0: Yes. He was the outlier and it is after him when um, his views actually became more dominant than any of the other forms you might say of open communion in practice, in the way it actually worked out Um, so that by mid 1800s, there are important changes. His, His views by that time held sway. There'd been a number of other advocates like Robert Hall Jr., for example, who were promoting a form of open communion, mixed communion, but, Yeah, it basically became baptism is not necessary as a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. Baptism understood in any mode. That was kind of Bunyan's legacy, interestingly enough. So in that sense, yes, definite aberration.
1: And that would be – in my anecdotal – I don't have data on this, but in my anecdotal experience – so we're in a little bit of an interesting place where open communion is much more popular now among Baptist churches than it was previously. It seems to me about a 50-50 split based on some informal polling that I've done. And there, there's probably data on like the SBC and stuff. But um, so, yeah, even though the SBC's Baptist faith and message requires or at least it, it, it the affirmation says close communion. I know many SBC churches don't practice that. So, um, but it's helpful to have the history of that to say, you know, what, what have other Christians before us held to, and now you've kind of responded, you presented some of the open communion arguments, you responded to, do, to those in your book, you present arguments for the close communion. Do you mind walking us through briefly those main arguments that you make?
0: Yeah. And so I have, um, essentially I, I needed to build off of what had already been done in the, um, uh, Baptist history from Andrew Fuller and Joseph Kinghorn and others, but there were some other sides of the argument that had not been developed, and I was excited to get to work those out and see in this case how Old and New Testament fit together and might help us here. And so just a little historical background to show you where my argument somewhat fits in. um, John Bunyan had said that you have this explicit command in Exodus that you can't take the Passover unless you are circumcised, or a part of a circumcised household. Um, That is explicit. It's stated several different ways in Exodus chapter 12. Um, But Bunyan said, I see that in Exodus chapter 12, but that is not in the New Testament. And so we are not bound by a command pertaining to circumcision and Passover for how we practice baptism in the Lord's supper. On the other hand, Abraham Booth said, well, yes, we are. We're bound by that because there's a principle there that the sign of covenant entry precedes the sign of covenant participation. Circumcision marked people off as entering God's people. It was the sign of covenant entry. And Passover marked the sign of uh, participating in being a part of God's redeemed people, redemption from slavery and being uh, his covenant community. And so Booth says, yes, it does apply. But Bunyan didn't say why it didn't apply. And Booth didn't say why it did apply. And Mm -hmm. I thought, hey, I can write on that. That would be very interesting. And so I, I basically, my thesis looked like this. It had three three prongs to the stool, you might say, three legs of the stool. One is baptism is prerequisite to the Lord's Supper because of the association of faith and baptism in the New Testament. The example of Acts chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 41, and then an argument of continuity that the sign of covenant entry precedes the sign of covenant participation. And so just briefly here, you have in Acts, for example, I've given a couple, couple of examples, but Acts 2 is just so clear. And we can make two points from that, that one passage where you have Peter preaching the gospel in Acts 2. And in verse 36, it says they're, they're cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, therefore, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Acts 2.41 then says, all those who received his word, a.k.a. believed, mm-hmm. all those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then it goes on to describe what they do in 2.42 that shows, is kind of the early marks of the church. Yeah. Um, is that they are gathering together for prayer, for the apostles teaching, for the breaking of bread, which is shorthand. Most scholars recognize for the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. and uh, for fellowship. OK, so what's the order in Acts chapter two? And I would argue it holds true throughout the rest of the New Testament. The order is the gospel is preached. People believe they received his word. They show their belief by a public outward formal sign Um, And that is baptism. They are added to the church through that baptism, and then they start to partake of the Lord's Supper and fellowship together with that church. And so they have both signs going on. So that one example shows you an association of faith and baptism, and it shows you that that in the only example we actually have it's the only one. You can get close in Acts 18, but it's the only explicit example that shows you belief, baptism, Lord's Supper. That's the order. So I just surveyed the rest of the New Testament and said, I think all the way through Acts 16, Acts 18, even where there's household baptisms, I think we can legitimately argue that everybody that gets baptized believed. Mm -hmm. Um, They show joy, for example, all in the house showed joy over the word that was preached to all of them with the Philippian jailer. How are they showing joy? Well, it's because they understand the gospel. They believe in Jesus. And so they get baptized. So faith and baptism, the example of Acts 2, 41 and 42, the most kind of original in that sense, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But I did want to argue that uh, sign of covenant entry precedes the sign of covenant participation, or you could say it another way. Um, my, my covenant oath, my initial covenant oath is going to be confirmed by a renewing oath sign, initiating oath sign, renewing oath sign. I argued that There's a biblical theological principle that that is the case, that just as circumcision was necessary for Passover, so baptism is necessary prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. And this is basically the way I argued it. Circumcision always was intended in the Old Testament, though it's a physical sign of a removal of skin of a male. um, It was always intended to be a marker of the need for the circumcision of the heart. That is developed across the Old Testament canon, even in the law and Leviticus, um, in the prophets, the need for the circumcision of the heart. And as it's developed across the canon, you finally get the promises of the new covenant that sound very much like the language that had been described as circumcision of the heart. Um, Mm -hmm. Jeremiah 9.23 is one famous place where this this is described. But you get that language of the new covenant that says they shall all know me. Their sins will be forgiven. Everybody in this new covenant community that will be uh, coextensive, the Messiah. So coterminous, when is the new covenant going to come? Well, it's going to be when the Messiah comes. He will bring the new covenant. He's going to be the servant of the Lord. So when the Messiah comes to bring the new covenant way of God's promises of a new covenant and our obligations from our end as covenant partners, well, then you're going to have changed hearts. He's going to give them all the Holy Spirit. He's going to forgive their sin and remember it no more. And you learn even the better news. It's actually Jesus who perfectly obeys all God's commands for us. He is the obedient covenant partner. And then because Jesus comes, he brings the new covenant. He gives us this circumcision of heart. He is the one, according to Colossians chapter two, that circumcises our hearts so that he makes us new from the inside out. And we express that newness in a formal public kind of sign of entry that is baptism. Um, So you could say it real short this way. Physical circumcision was looking forward to circumcision of the heart or regeneration. Mm -hmm. And baptism is reflecting on retrospective of circumcision of the heart regeneration. And that Circumcision of the heart regeneration is true in Christ, by coming to Christ, by trusting only in him and not what we can do. Um, And so that's why Colossians chapter 2 is the only passage in the whole of Scripture that explicitly associates circumcision with baptism. And it says we've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, having been buried with him in baptism. And so when you put that language together, having been buried with Christ in baptism is elaborative of is expressive of, is reflective of the circumcision of the heart. So that was the connection. I, it is a consistent principle. Um, one other place that I saw that would just really clearly express it, and then I'll pause a second here, is in First Corinthians. In First Corinthians, you get this language in First Corinthians 12, 13 that says everybody who's a Christian has been baptized into one spirit. Now, I think that it does refer to spirit baptism, the spirit coming to the start of his indwelling us permanently. But it also implies, as an aspect of conversion, water baptism mm-hmm. is there. Well, so everybody who becomes a Christian is baptized with water and is given the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 10, 16 and 17 describes everybody who is trusting in Christ as continually participating in, fellowshipping with Christ And you saw Andrew Fuller's logic. It's the covenant community are those who are baptized and then feed on Christ, the spiritual food of Christ. He reminds us of the truth of the gospel as we partake of the Lord's supper. Yeah, that's some of the argument.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And I think maybe to just kind of boil that down, make sure no one's gotten lost on the way. A a helpful imagery that I've heard from Mark Dever, I'm sure others have used it. I don't know if it's original to him, but it's this idea of thinking of baptism as the front door, the entry door into the church, the community of faith, those who believe. So and then and then the Lord's Supper is like the family meal. It's the food at the table when you walk into the door. And so that sort of both of those arguments that you just presented, uh the first two of those arguments that you unpacked, is you know, the apostolic pattern, you have Acts two, those who receive the word are baptized, um and they're added, added to what? Added to the group of believers, the 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 church. And then they're, uh, you know, participating in the, in the, among those four things listed. One of those is the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. So there's this thing that marks you off at the beginning, your entry, which is baptism, your, the the entry door into the house of faith, so to say. And then the Lord's Supper is in that ongoing rite. So we have, we have, just like in the Old Testament then, so this ties into your second argument, just as in the Old Testament, there was an initiation rite, in that case applied to, uh, offspring, um, infants, um, but a physical sign of circumcision that marked off the people as an initiation right into the covenant. And then there was, whether we want to call it an ordinance or sign, there was there is a Passover uh, Passover meal and that eventually gets connected to the Lord's Supper by Jesus, even in his words of institution. He does he or, he institutes the Lord's Supper at a Passover meal. And so, so- as Colossians, as you said, Colossians 2. If anyone's like hearing that connection of baptism and circumcision and they're like, what's that all about? That seems fishy. No, it's it's in Colossians 2. Paul does that. He connects uh, baptism as symbolizing what circumcision was looking forward to. Um, and so that, that sort of spiritual circumcision, as Paul says, baptism then is reflective of that. And so just as there is a an entry mark in the Old Testament, that's a prerequisite for the Passover meal. So there's an entry mark in the New Testament, baptism, the things that marks off the people of God, the initiation rite, that then uh, is the entry door into the ongoing uh, rite of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yeah. And then there uh, there's one other argument that I think is especially strong, which is the link between faith and baptism, just how those two are associated in the New Testament. Do you mind unpacking that argument for us as well?
0: Yeah. So somewhere like um, th- there are two places that are so, so clear. Um, one is Romans chapter six. And so Romans six presents it where Paul is assuming that everybody in the church has been baptized. He says, uh, verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, he he is associating then what has just been described in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 as far as faith, justification by faith alone. That faith is uh, expressed outwardly in baptism. Because what's happening when I trust in Jesus is I'm being united with Christ. My old self has died. It's already counted as crucified on the cross. And I am given new life by God's grace to start walking in newness of life by the power of the Spirit. And so the baptism itself is outwardly reflecting the faith that Paul has just said is the instrument of justification in the previous chapters. Um, Galatians is another spot. And this one, it just uh, floored me as I was getting to write my dissertation and got to learn so much myself and just reading the Bible. Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All right. What's the means by which I appropriate union with Christ? I come into saving relationship, saving covenant relationship with Christ was by faith. You're all sons of God by faith. But then verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. So there is this internal appropriation. This, the most fundamental um, aspect, how we are coming into saving relationship with Christ is by faith alone. Um, the baptism is not doing anything in that sense. I rely on what Christ has done for me. Trust only in him. And so I'm personally trusting in Christ and all that he has accomplished for me. But Galatians presents baptism as the immediate uh other side of the coin to that, the outward reflection of that. You could you could almost ask it backwards where it says, um, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Notice Paul's logic there. If you haven't been baptized into Christ, you haven't put on Christ. Now, that would be understood as an outward appropriation of union with Christ. Um, This is not an argument about baptism. The thief on the cross couldn't possibly have gone to heaven because he wasn't baptized. That's not quite what we're talking about. But we are saying God himself intends not just to save us as individuals, but to save a corporate community and us as individuals into his corporate body of Christ. And part of the way he does that corporately is that we are publicly baptized into that corporate community. That's why there's not only an internal appropriation through faith, but an outward uh, external appropriation of union with Christ through baptism.
1: Yeah, and and this is, this is one of the strongest, in my opinion, it may be just the one that resonates the most with me, is just how baptism and conversion or faith and repentance are linked. Again, some, you know, that argument that sometimes is for the open communion is, well, we want it to be believers uh, who partake of the Lord's Supper. And I say, yes, I agree. And what the New Testament shows us is that there is this pattern that believers get baptized. In other words, I'm not saying that someone can't be a genuine believer and be saved apart, like without being baptized. I'm not saying that baptism saves people. But biblically speaking, baptism is the church's way of publicly marking off those who are believers Uh, it is that normative step that believers take Uh, they receive baptism and they are united to christ by faith but then they're also united to him publicly um, invisibly before others, and God to them uh, speaking, you might say, declaring His promises, as depicted in the Lord's Supper to or in baptism to them by being marked off as His own. This is a pattern you see, as you said in Romans six. I also think about even just the pattern in Acts. You mm-hmm. have this documented in the article that I will share, uh, but the consistent pattern in Acts of of belief and baptism, and even where we don't explicitly see baptism, we should assume that that's part of the part of the pattern that was established. And so this is why. There's even debate about, you know, some groups that would argue that baptism saves. The reason they even bring those arguments is because it's so closely associated with salvation. And we agree with that. It is closely associated with salvation. Those who believe the actual instrument of salvation, faith, get baptized. And so in Scripture, baptism is really closely associated with salvation, and that that's why. Um, because because it is associated with conversion, and yeah. so there's no there would be no instance, for example, in the New Testament of a unbaptized believer. That's just that would just not be a thing based on how baptism was functioning. Um, and I guess that really gets us then into. I wanted to unpack. Um, would there be anything that you would add? I guess in terms of. Uh, I get. Let me backtrack. I think one of the reasons people struggle with the close communion position is sometimes because they lack some of these theological categories that are at play in making sense of close communion. So it might just sound bizarre to them because maybe they haven't actually thought through a theology of baptism and what baptism really means. I actually think one of the reasons, the primary reason people resist close communion or can't, uh, maybe they struggle to grasp, uh, to see it as compelling is not so much because of a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. I think that's at play too, but probably more fundamentally, in my opinion, it's that they misunderstand what baptism is um, such that they fail to see why it would be a prerequisite. Is there anything you would want to say then in clarifying further, you know, the what is the role of baptism in the Christian life such that we would see it as a requirement for the Lord's Supper?
0: Yeah. So it can sometimes, uh, you get these opposite extremes. Baptism is either – On a far extreme, I think, that dilutes the gospel, um, the instrument of regeneration or the necessary timing for when the spirit is given to a believer. I think that goes beyond New Testament evidence to say it that way. Um, It makes baptism part of the instrument of salvation itself, where faith is what is presented as the fundamental instrument of salvation. Um, So that's one extreme. Basically, baptism saves. You could say it. Real simply that way, I guess. Um, on the other extreme, okay, well, if baptism, if if I don't get regenerated in the water or the spirit's not given to me in the water, maybe baptism's just unimportant, and that's the far opposite extreme, and where Peter actually presents it in Acts two thirty eight: Repent, therefore, and be baptized, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. So there, it is a purposive uh, use of that. Be baptized so that you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's not because, though, that Peter is presenting baptism itself as doing saving, as part of the act of saving. No, Christ himself saves. It's just that Peter so closely associates repentance and baptism or faith and baptism that they can all be viewed as part of the cluster of conversion events in the New Testament. And so when we start to try and separate baptism and conversion, um, we we will cloud and confuse, on the one hand, our doctrine of conversion, what it means to trust in Jesus, and on the other hand, our idea of what it means to belong to the covenant community as believers, uh, our doctrine of the church. And so we want to hold those things together. Yeah, that's good.
1: Yeah, and I would say too, um, maybe one of the things that we're assuming here is that the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. It's mm-hmm. not something that, you know, your group of friends should be just doing or you and your wife doing on your own or something like that. It's an ordinance that God has given to his church. And so it ought to be something participated in by the church, not just anybody. And so with that, then the church, I think, needs to be able to publicly know who are its constituents um it's not just any random person uh even if they claim to be a believer there should be there should be public recognition and so whether that's this church or another church another gospel believing church and so baptism being one of those things that marks off the church understanding that baptism is is a sign you I, Jonathan Lehman has explained it this way kind of like if if the churches are embassies of Christ's kingdom and they sort of issue out passports Uh, I think of the language that Jesus used in Matthew 6, as well as Matthew 18, where he talks about how the apostles representing the church there are granted the keys of the kingdom. In other words, a key is something that opens and closes, It, it locks and shuts. Or in John, at the end of John, he speaks about you know maybe this language that we kind of get a little uncomfortable with, but he talks about the apostles, like those to whom you extend the forgiveness of sins are are forgiven. I don't, I'm probably not getting the language exactly right, but those who are those with whom you withhold the forgiveness of sins, it's withheld, so to say, and it's not to say that forgiveness is somehow mediated through people. It's Jesus alone. Uh, yet the church, Christ has given the church, like we have to deal with that scripture. Christ has given the church authority in in sort of recognizing publicly who are believers. Like your faith is not merely some private event. You ought to be a part of a church. And uh, the ordinances in many ways, like you talk about the marks of the church, uh, the, the as Protestants have developed thinking through what marks off a church, first and foremost, it is the gospel. The gospel produces a church. You don't have church where there is no gospel producing people who believe the gospel. The church is a group of believers, and so you need the gospel to produce that faith. And yet, they would, Protestants have historically and secondly said that the ordinances are the other mark of the church because the ordinances are what then publicly mark off who that gospel believing people are. Baptism as the initiating rite and the Lord's Supper as the ongoing rite. And so in many ways, we can actually say the ordinances are what make the church. And so you don't want to extend those boundaries of who receives baptism in the Lord's Supper beyond what the church actually is. And then discipline, which kind of gets into the role of why membership matters for baptism, discipline is the way of maintaining those boundaries. If there's no discipline, if there's no, you know, church having oversight, that someone's actually maintaining good standing within God's people, um, then you know, someone might be at one point baptized, but who's to say they ought to be still considered baptized? to be a believer if their lifestyle has they're all of a sudden proving to be unrepentant as we know people do fall away from the faith so to say anything you would add maybe about the role we've talked a lot about baptism but and i've kind of gotten into this a little bit but why uh, the role of of the church what is let me say it this way what is the role of the church in the christian life such that we would see membership and good standing in the church as a requirement for the lord's
0: supper yeah. So the role of the church in the Christian life, what a great question. I, I think Christ has uh, instituted the local church it is his church. He builds the church out of those who confess him as the Christ and their lives actually show that. Um, so they they are like Peter, who said, you are Christ. Um, and Jesus says, yes. And you are Peter on this rock. You're Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I think the idea is Jesus is building the church out of people who confess him as he is, and their lives show that. And so he has instituted baptism as a way to mark us off from the world and then to nurture us into the image of Jesus. I mean, the role of the church in the Christian life, I immediately think of Ephesians 4, where Christ himself has given gifts to the church, and especially in that passage, it's – Uh, teaching gifts are kind of preeminent there pastor teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry to what end until we all attain to the fullness of the stature of Christ. So that we grow up in every way into him who is the head. So Christ himself has a people has a body, the body of Christ. We can think of it in universal terms, all Christians everywhere. Um, But we also have to think of it in local, particular assemblies of Christian terms, local church terms. And we have to think of it that way because, for example, the one another commands in Scripture, the practice of church discipline, require that we do. Um, If you, Lord forbid, were to walk in unrepentant sin for some period of time, I, with my church here at Roebuck Baptist in South Carolina, could not discipline you. It's not possible because you're not gathering with our church. You have not covenanted with our church. And similarly, you couldn't do that with me. Your church could not do that with me. This is why we need local churches, actual assemblies of believers, of people who know each other. And part of what we mean by church membership is that these are the people who belong to the new covenant together. And we belong to the new covenant together vertically, first and foremost, by virtue of our union with Christ, by faith that is shown through baptism. And because we belong to Christ, then there's a derivative horizontal. The vertical leads to the horizontal one another commands of scripture, and the believers, the brothers and sisters toward whom we are especially to carry out those one another commands, you might call them the new covenant obligations of God's people, are our local church members. That's the Mm -hmm. people that we walk through life together following Jesus with. Um, And so these covenant signs, yeah, they're just clarifying for us who are those believers for whom I'm especially responsible to edify them, build them up in Christ, to hold them accountable and who are responsible to and for me to build me up in the faith and to hold me accountable. Oh, what's the people I take the Lord's Supper with? Part of the way I know that, I'm not just reading that in. um, It is theological, like you explained before, putting various pieces of what Scripture teaches together to make that claim. But 1 Corinthians 10, 17 actually spells it out pretty clearly. Um, If you ask Paul, where do we find a local church? Where do we find a local manifestation of the body of Christ? I think he would say it's the people who take the Lord's Supper together regularly. He says, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 10. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Now, what makes us one body? Next phrase. For we all partake of the one bread. What makes us one body? We all partake of the one bread. And in the verse right before that, he's mentioned the cup that we share together. He's talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. And he says, you might think of it, use this language, the Lord's Supper is an ecclesially effective sign. Got that from Mm -hmm. Bobby Jameson, ecclesially effective. That just means the people who take the Lord's Supper together are a church regularly, which is why. A college dorm Bible study should not be taking the Lord's Supper together. They've not made those commitments toward one another to hold one another accountable, to sit under the preaching of the word. Um, No, a whole church is who makes those commitments together. And where you have the Lord's Supper, you have the commitments and the commitments to Christ and to one another under the preaching of the word.
1: Yeah, that's good. And maybe even one argument I think we didn't mention before, but oftentimes open communion Communion advocates will simply say, you know, the Lord's Supper ought to be open to everybody who believes and is walking in repentant faith. The idea of uh, belief and hopefully, hopefully I would think they would want to argue also, you know, demonstrating that faith, that they actually are a genuine believer, not just a mere professing believer. And I would want to say, OK, I actually think that argument gets you to close communion because true faith and true repentance to actually then follow Christ is to receive baptism. He commanded it. It's part of the Great Commission of all things. It's not some minor detail. Um, go and make disciples baptizing them. And also, I would say... Uh, being involved in a local church, actually being uh, visibly and publicly a member of a church. Not Church isn't something we attend. It's something we belong to. That's what I mean by church membership. Um, so are you actually able to obey those commands, like commands like loving your fellow church member, using your gifts for the body, 1 Corinthians 12, submitting to your leaders, Hebrews 13. If you don't have a if you don't have a someone that you've actually covenanted with to be your pastor or other members that you are to serve in all the ways that scripture commands, I'm not sure I want to call that uh actually living in repentant faith. Now, I'm not saying that people who, do, who are maybe aren't baptized or aren't a part of a church are necessarily like high-handedly disobeying scripture. They may just have not been instructed and they may not be aware that they need to do those things and those things are good for them. So I'm not trying to like over, you know, harshly condemn all those folks. Um, but I do want to consistently practice what Scripture does say, hold up those things, and hopefully that can be a loving confrontation to get them to join us in a more faithful practice of what Scripture teaches. So what benefits would you say are there to a church practicing close communion? How does this practice aid the church in her mission? As the podcast is church theology, theology for the church, um, on the church and for the church, how, how does this actually help us? What are the benefits of close communion?
0: Yeah. One of the major benefits is that if um, maybe maybe let me back up just a little bit, because exactly what you were on, I can get to it from an analogy, a couple of analogies. One would be, and we've said this similarly, if baptism, marriage is a covenant scripture, that there's the new covenant and the new covenant sign of entry is baptism and the new covenant sign of participation is the Lord's Supper. So baptism is like marriage the Lord's supper is like a vow renewal and you can't have a vow renewal in a marriage where you haven't had a wedding. Right. Yeah. And so you get that and then you get into that passport image and that can lead us. So let me tease out the passport image just a little bit. Sometimes people will ask the question, like, am I not competent in myself to say I'm a believer and have people just believe me? Why do I need a church to affirm that I am a believer by baptism in order for me to partake in the Lord's Supper? And it's a good question because scripture does present you as a believer should be able to have assurance of salvation and these kinds of things from trusting in Christ because it's Christ alone that saves. And yet, as we've been recognizing, there is this corporate element where the church is officially given authority by Jesus to recognize and affirm our confession of faith in Christ. And so the passport analogy can go like this, learned it from Jonathan Lehman as well, that if I am uh, an American citizen in Germany, and I really need to get back to the United States, but I've lost my passport, I cannot simply uh, make up a passport and say, I'm an American citizen, let me back on the plane so I can get to the United States. I can't do that because I'm not authorized by the United States government to form my own passport. Similarly, I can't go to another American citizen, a random individual in Germany, and say, well, you make me a passport. You think that I'm an American citizen. You know I am. Make me a passport. The government's not going to recognize that. That's not the, author, the way the authorization works. However, I can go to the embassy, the American embassy in Germany. They can make me a new passport and I can get back on the plane and come back to the United States because the American embassy in Germany Has the authorization to do that. Now, individual Christians then are what's being told to them when they are baptized by a local church is that those brothers and sisters in Christ at that particular local church see Christ in you. They see the Spirit at work in your life. And they just, that's part of your assurance of salvation. Actually, to be Mm -hmm. baptized is that we see that you are trusting in Jesus. You profess that. We see it in your life and we want to affirm that as God's representatives. We're going to affirm that by baptizing. you, And then every single time they give you the Lord's Supper, they are acting as that kingdom embassy again, saying we are still affirming you as a believer. Yeah. Christ's grace is still yours. Just keep trusting in him. We are still his hands and feet to lift you up and affirm you in the faith. And that's why we're giving you the bread. That's why we're giving you the cup is because we see you as a believer, because the promises of the gospel are still true. I mean, don't we all need that? Don't we need right. that even weekly? Um, I, let's, let's bring in weekly Lord's Supper. Uh, what a great <laughs> practice, right? Yeah. Um, Don't we need to have reaffirmed for us that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ walking along with us side by side for the faith of the gospel um, who are affirming that they see Christ in us, that Christ's promises are still true even when we struggle with sin and when we're fighting it and maybe when the circumstances of life are just very difficult, Christ is still faithful. And this practice of close communion more carefully and more specifically and individually gives you that kind of encouragement as you are served the Lord's Supper week in, week out, month in, month out, however often the church participates in the Lord's Supper. Um, it is more carefully guarding your life and trying to help you not go off the rails as a Christian, trying to help you not walk away from Jesus. It's helping you. your church practice church discipline. Because you're being careful to say this person doesn't just claim to be a believer, but they're like a Lone Ranger Christian, uh, an American citizen in Germany who says I'm an American citizen, but they have no proof. No, this person is someone who is recognized as a believer by the authorities Christ has uh, given the ability to do that kind of a thing. Christ has delegated the local church. So, yeah, we're just wanting to encourage the gospel faithful walking with Jesus and faithful walking with Jesus together as local churches so that Christ's name is glorified. That's what we're after here.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, we. I like to speak of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's supper in terms of three voices that occur in it. First right? of all, we oftentimes think of it maybe what's common in our tradition, the more Baptistic tradition, is we think of it as, you know, it's our declaration of faith. You know, sometimes it's a, we refer to refer to it as the first step of obedience and we're confessing our faith publicly. And that's true. Like first Peter three talks about baptism as an appeal to a good conscience before God. Um, but it's also, and maybe predominantly I would I would say. It's it's God speaking to us. It's the gospel made visible. And it's Him, uh it's 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 signs of His pledge to us. So uh the the Lord's Supper um gives us promises in visible form. I, I like to use the language of pictured promises. And so God is speaking. But as they are ordinances administered by the church. Um, they're distributed in the Lord's Supper by the church. They're administered oftentimes by elders in baptism. These are things, this is, the church also is expressing a voice in the matter and saying, we believe that you're a believer too. Mm-hmm. And so I think, again, I think one of the biggest hangups for people when it comes to close communion is just not necessarily having the theological categories for that function of baptism and even the function of the local church in the Christian life. It's so common for us as kind of in an individualistic society and consumeristic mentalities to kind of think, well, I'm on my own. I don't need accountability. Why would I need to submit to a church? Why would I need to be recognized uh, by this you know body over here that's been authorized by Christ to actually recognize my faith, those categories aren't at play, and I think once you get those categories in play from Scripture, the, the network of these ideas comes comes into comes into its whole. So maybe one last question is then on the ground: How would you want a church and its members to experience the goodness of practicing close communion?
0: Yeah, um, that they're hearing the gospel. They're they're being reminded that the basis of um, their union together as a local church is union with Christ, and that that is what these ordinances are symbolizing. And so it's because the gospel is what it is and Christ saved through faith in his good news of what he has accomplished that we would be baptized And then that we would take the Lord's Supper as that reaffirmation of our trust in Christ and his reaffirmation of the promises of the gospel to us. And so it's going to be good for us that the practice is going to be good. It's going to be felt as good when it's based on the gospel, when the church's understanding of membership, their responsibilities to and for one another are just the working out of the one another commands that are incumbent upon us because we trust in Christ and because we're gathering together as local churches and taking the Lord's Supper. When you have that kind of mutual edification and that aim to build others up, and especially I would say those with whom you're participating in the Lord's Supper, we are especially thinking of the family of faith, do good to all, but especially the family of faith, then this whole idea of expressing what are the prerequisites for taking the Lord's Supper in our church when you actually tell that to people as you're explaining the the bread and the cup together. I think that comes off in light of the context of unity and the context of love for Christ and each other. It will come off as these people are doing this because they really love Jesus and trust him. They care about what his word says and they really care about me. That's what I want to come off. That's what I want to be experienced as good. They are willing to take responsibility for me. I'm an adult. I'm following Jesus. I have responsibility for myself, right? I'm an independent person. Well, yes, in all those right senses. But biblically, we are actually dependent on one another because we're part of a body. And so it's just going to be experienced as body life is what I want, that we're weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. This is just one aspect of that whole. Yeah.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Dallas, and sharing with us. Again, just want to give an a plug in for those for that book. Uh that book is uh, Who Can Take the Lord's Supper, a biblical theological argument for close communion by Dallas Van Diver? That's the more academic, the lengthier book. And then I will also share uh, some other resources, shorter stuff, uh, an article that kind of summarizes some of those arguments as well for anyone who's interested. But again, thank you for coming on and taking the time to help us think through these things.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. What a joy.